This week on Writers Inc. If you think of a twist, don't just settle on that one twist. Like you need to then twist it again and then maybe again. I have this reputation now of being like, ooh, he's a twist guy. His books always have like these big, crazy twists and reveals that you never see coming. But now people are expecting them. And so it becomes this game of, oh gosh, I need to one up this again. And so how do I do that? And so like the main twist for the only one left, I thought of that one really early on. And then I was starting to write the book. I'm like, oh, I need to do more than just that. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Welcome to Writer's Inc. with Patrick O'Donnell. Kevin Tomlinson. And this is J.D. Barker. And I'm supposed to say welcome to Writer's Inc. We're all screwed up. We've got no JP, no Christine. <laughs> we, hey, we got no clue. This all, our, really. you know, all, all our uh, uh, our uh, security people, all the people who take care of us, who uh, handle us, our handlers are all gone. The ones who know what they're doing. Yeah, just to warn you, if you're listening, this will be a train wreck. I'm, I'm telling you that right now. We've already been talking about booze, and we're just going to talk <laughs> yeah, about it more. Yeah, <laughs> we're just acting like we're drunk, but we really aren't. Be- before we get into that, something really funny just happened. So I- I've got tech like all over my house. I-, I love new gizmos and gadgets and stuff. And I got- Amazon sent me these air quality meters that you can put, and they're they're Wi-Fi based. So I've got them in like various rooms throughout our house. So like if anything weird happens, they get tripped, and like I get a notification. And and for the most part, it's usually like my wife is cooking something, and like and you could literally like if you can smell it. You know, a good smell. It could be bacon. Um, it, the air yeah. quality thing goes off. Um, but I, I just had a, a woman come through. She's giving us a quote on some design stuff. And she was like heavily perfumed. Like she just like, like buried in the perfume. <laughs> and, and, and like the notifications are tied into our, our echo devices throughout the house. So oh, no. it, it actually says it says it out loud. So she was in the house for like maybe three minutes. And the, the Alexa goes off and says, air quality in your home is poor. <laughs> <laughs> and I am trying to keep a straight face while there's this guy that's walking around with her. And like, I think he knew exactly what it was and he kept his mouth shut and this woman had no clue, but um, they're gone now. I can still smell whatever it was she was wearing. And um, yeah, I need to open some windows. That's, that's, that's tragic. What's going on with you guys? Patrick, what's going on with you? You were telling me a story before we started. You said <laughs> yeah, you had a very feeling- Kevin like experience. I did have a Kevin-like experience. I was driving a Sprinter van across country, you know, and it reminded me of your, you know, your uh, My adventures, adventures when you were uh, yeah. going across country and you you had a big RV, then you went to like a Sprinter van, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 yeah. we, had, we had four different RVs in four years. Wow. Yeah, how, well, how big is, how big is your family? Fun. 
Mine? It's just me and my wife. I mean, it's oh, you know, okay. the two of us and our and our dog. Oh, were you talking to Patrick? No, I was, I was talking Patrick? to you because I was just like, I, I thought you had kids and stuff, and I was like, a, you know, no, no, we never, we couldn't have kids, so we had travel instead, you know. And uh, we have a tiny little dog, so it's perfect for like van life. Hey, pet, pets are awesome. So. You don't have to put them through college, right? <laughs> and you don't have so to far, move them from so Seattle to. She's Milwaukee. pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it wasn't a fun right. trip. It was the let's move the kid back home trip from Seattle. So, yeah. But um, I saw, you know, Montana, Idaho, North Dakota. Those are some boring ass states. But one the highlight of for me yeah. was in in Montana, I like going to the small like gas stations that are like local. Now I'm sounding like JP. But I go to the local gas station and they had a gift as, a, as opposed to driving out of town to get your gas and coming back. Well, you know, not the big chains. I like the local. <laughs> so, yeah. So, oh, okay. I see. I, you I, I get it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Locally owned rather than locally chain. owned and operated. I yes. So yeah. I'm, you know, getting a Red Bull or whatever. And I look at the gift case and there's these furry like tails in there. This is Montana in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, um, what are these? And one was a bobcat tail, and the other one was a silver fox tail that you could purchase. We, I don't see that a lot in the city. Nice. nice. Which one did you get? What, <laughs> what are you wearing right now? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? You, you don't see that angle. <laughs> Honestly, that's that's the best part of a road trip is just hitting some of those little mom and pop stores. Like if you, if you can find yeah. the, the old yes. gas station that's been there forever, that's, you know, family run or whatever, they've got the craziest stuff inside. I don't know about you guys. I eat more when we road trip. Like I eat like I'm constantly eating when we road trip. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. It's weird. Like you get behind the wheel and you're, you're like immediately hungry. You know, like yeah. I, I normally yeah. don't eat breakfast. Like I have just a little bit of a snack same. and just a ton of coffee and nothing really until lunchtime. But if I'm in the car, like I try to repeat that. And by like, you know, an hour in and like I, I need to get Oreos you or I need a sandwich. Gotta have, or, yeah, a, or a, something greasy. Yeah, you know, I got to have, you know, you chips eat poorly and it's bored eating. I think, you know, when you're on a road trip, you're bored. And you, it's just something yeah. to do, you know, then you don't make good yeah. you know, nutrition choices when you're doing something. My like wife that. tries to like game that, like she'll bring, she, she, she's into this whole, uh, the whole 30 thing, you know, uh, very healthy eating. And so she'll try to bring along like whole 30 approved snacks, like, you know, whole 30 beef jerky or whole 30, whatever. And, uh, they, it's like, I don't know, it's just. I'm glad they're good for me, but they're awful. You know, that's not what I want. I don't want whole 30 beef jerky. I want that bag of like <laughs> gnarled animal flesh that you, you can only get at, at truck stops. I killed you know? this myself yes. two, day, two days ago. It's like it's still, smoked, it has a silver shed. fox tail on yeah. it. You know, you, you know someone it's just still moving, Kevin. In. Is that what's going on? Yeah, that, that's, that's all that's about just for. zero waste. You know, you make the beef jerky, right. you keep the tail and do something with the, the rabbit foot. Yeah, right. Official roadkill brand beef jerky. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, man. I want to go on a road trip. <laughs> All right. We got no JP. JP is off. Christine is off. Kevin, what's in the news? <clears throat> well, uh, so some sad news. Uh, this one really hit me yesterday. This was one of like three or four different stories that hit me yesterday on Twitter. But Cormac McCarthy has died at the age of 89. Uh, he's one of the most significant authors of contemporary American literature, known for his unique writing style and his exploration of human nature 
Uh, he passed away at the age of, eight, of 89. Uh, his work often focused on society's margins set in Appalachia or the uh, American Southwest was frequently compared to William Faulkner, Herman Melville, Mark Twain, and King, the King James Bible of all things uh, due to his intricate and archaic prose. Um, he passed and also John Romita senior uh, for those who are followers of Marvel comics in particular, um, he was one of the first. He was not the first illustrator of Spider-Man, but one of the first illustrators of Spider-Man was a was a very popular comic artist. So, lots lots of people. And William Treat is that his name? William Treat. Do you guys not know who I'm talking about? He also I have no idea. Just- I, I know that name. Um, yeah, it's it, this is weird. Like it, this makes me feel older. Um, you know, cause like when, when you're young and you hear about famous people that die, like you, you typically, you don't really know the names. Um, now yeah. I'm at this weird stage in my life where like, I know all the names of all the celebrities that are dying. And I guess the final stage of that is like, you, you like your peers begin dying, <laughs> you know, like, right. that's, that's like, yeah, that's the right, next yeah. step. So we're, we're somewhere in the middle of that. Um, but I've been reading this guy my entire life. Um, you know, yeah. it, it hit home. I mean, I, I think I've got every one of his books up on the shelf and it, he's one of those guys, like, you know, as my daughter is getting older, I'm introducing her to, you know, like the stuff that I love, like R.L. Stein just sent her a whole bunch of Goosebumps books. So we're like, we're digging into that cause she's five. Nice, um, very but nice. like, you know, yeah. like I've got Charles Dickens, like on deck, like ready to go when she gets just a little bit older and he, he's on there too. Like, you know, once she's, you know, maybe in her early teens, like I think she'll be into it um but he's like one that i'm gonna just share with her forever so yeah you're gonna you're gonna give her the road maybe you know it's that's a tough one man i had to switch and listen to that on audio because i just couldn't i couldn't keep with it but but it's a ama- it's an amazing book but i mean it was tough it was tough to read and no country for old men that was a great one too but he's just he's uh, one of those guys like, you know, like i've been writing professionally forever and like i pick up one yeah. of his books and i'm like oh this is how you really do it you know like he he, he kind of <laughs> yeah. just puts everybody in their their place when when you look at that prose um he he will be missed for sure you definitely uh next up uh children's enjoyment of writing has fallen to quote crisis point research finds a study by the national literacy national literacy trust indicates that children's enjoyment of writing is at a concerning low level with about one third or 34.6 percent of eight to 18 year olds expressing pleasure in writing during their free time data drawn from over 70,000 responses indicates a decline in children's writing enjoyment by 12.2% over the past 13 years, despite children reporting writing as a means of promoting creativity and self-expression. The long and the short of this is uh, the number of kids who are, who are uh, enjoying the writing process has declined uh, over recent years. So where's I want JP back. At least he brings in some happy news every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> these are all from JP. I'm just going to tell you. So yeah, now this, this one, um, dead authors and declining interest in writing. So uh, discuss my daughter at her elementary school, you know, she's in kindergarten. She just actually, they just finished last week. Um, they, they have creative writing in kindergarten. So it's essentially, you know, they, wow. they teach them to, you know, draw, draw a picture. They, they sound out the words and they draw some text for the, the you know, and, and they staple it all together and they basically create their own little books. Um, and they've been doing that since um, probably about two or three months into the, the school year. 
um, which I thought was fantastic because I don't think I don't remember us having that. You know, when I was in kindergarten, like we had nap time and, and you know, played with toys most of the, the day. Um, but like the other day, my daughter vanished on me like I was I was working and like my wife was gone and you know, I was basically watching her. But, you know, she was watching TV and stuff. But like she I looked Not out and she well. wasn't by the TV anymore. <laughs> she was gone. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I knew she couldn't get out of the <laughs> house. Very well. the house she she she, JD has <laughs> the, the point. JD has technology for that. Yeah. The, the, the point yeah. of the story is when I Robot when dog, I found her, her, I found I, I found her on the floor in my wife's office and she had just finished writing a book. Like she had a, it was about seven pages long. Like she drew pictures for every page. She wrote text oh, out for amazing. every page and she stapled it together. And, and granted it was like, it was stapled backwards and like, you know, lots of things going on that you would expect from a five-year-old. Um, but like she had a story with a, a beginning, a middle and an end that was illustrated. <laughs> you know, so like. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, it made me feel very much like a proud papa. Um, and I just, I, I hope that that's something, if it's not being done in every kindergarten class, I hope it's something that they adopt and, and we see more of it. That was my writing origin story, by the way. Yeah. Five years old, I, I wrote like a five page book. You know, I drew the cover. I used masking tape for the binding and everything. So wow. you know, that was my book. Uh, so that, you know, that that's that's good. I mean, I'm that that portends well for her. So hopefully she, uh, you know, and she's got good influences in her life. See, I'm suspicious yeah, I, 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 of this whole thing. I'm suspicious because <laughs> they say kids, what's the age groups? And it's so vague. And it's like, okay, I mean, how are you measuring yeah. this metric? You know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, JD well, talking they did about surveys, his, you know. Yeah, but, you know, like JD, you mm-hmm. know, your kid in kindergarten, my granddaughter is around the same age. And they're doing 100 times more in school than we ever did. You know, when I was a little yeah. kid, it was nuns that would crack you <laughs> with a ruler if your cursive wasn't right. There was absolutely zero, you know, like freedom of expression or anything. It's like, no, it's you learn the very rudimentary basics when you were young. There wasn't a whole lot of, well, yeah. what do you think about that? Or why don't you start your own story? It's like, no, you read, you do yeah. read and write and arithmetic. That was it. You know, I wanted to say earlier and I forgot, but I, I just, I listened to James Patterson's uh, autobiography, James Patterson by James Patterson as read by James Patterson with a special foreword from James Patterson. Uh, and it, he, he talked about, you know, he's very passionate about encouraging kids to love to read. Uh, and I assume that that also spills over into writing. Uh, he didn't mention that specifically, but. I wanted to say, though, J.D., I'm sorry that you weren't mentioned among his many favorite uh, co-authors. Oh, trust me. I called him when I saw that. (laughs) 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 He's like, he said, I I can't list them all. And he went into some of the reasons, like they're all my favorites. And he had had a canned speech because I'm sure I wasn't the only one he had to to give that that particular talk to. Um, But honestly, like I was really entertained by that autobiography, though. He's just, you know, the guy is a gifted storyteller. And, you know, he he started with literally nothing. And, you know, he is one of the best selling authors in the world. And like every one of these little stories kind of got him there. Um, but it's, it's yeah. a fantastic read and it's a, you know, like just like his other books, it's a, it's a fast read. It's a page turner. Yep. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. Uh, our final story it. of the day, uh, Barnes and Noble stores vote to unionize. So workers at Barnes and Noble's flagship store in Union Square, New York City, have overwhelmingly voted to join the Retail, Wholesale and Department Store Union or RWDSU with 90 percent in favor. The trend follows other recent decisions to unionize uh, at various Barnes and Noble locations, including the college bookstores at, is it Rutgers? Do I pronounce that correctly or is it just, I'm always 
questioning that, but Rutgers University, I've never heard it said aloud. That's why. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I am, um, uh, unions, man. Uh, I'm probably in the minority here, but I am not a fan of unions. I don't, uh, I think that they are detrimental to society, et cetera. So I'll just let you guys discuss this. Uh, I, I, I think there's a place for unions, but you know, what got me about this is like, I never really thought of Barnes and Noble as like a full-time job. Like to me, it, it's yeah. more of, you know, something high school right. kids should be doing college students, you know, people, you know, like a, a first job or, you know, a second job, but basically, you know, whatever they're going to do before a career. Um, and a union, position to me feels like a career. So it, it makes it feel like, you know, this is backpedaling or it's backsliding a little bit, you know, jobs that, you know, normally would have been starter jobs and probably were when we were all younger are now becoming yeah. the norm. And, you know, they're, they're minimum wage positions. Like you can't support a family on that or you, you can try, but, um, that's, that's the, the, what I actually got out of it. Like, um, whether, yeah. whether it's going to be good or not for, for that industry, who, who knows? Um, I mean, it might, might help with wages. It might not. Yeah, it's hard to see. There are always certain benefits that come along uh, from unionization um, that you know can help out. You know, salary increases are probably one of the biggest. You know, the uh, the advent of various uh, benefits, the improvement of of um, work quality and quality of life stuff um, can be some of the benefits of this. What what ends up happening, in my opinion, and and this is just my opinion, but a lot of times what you what you put that much pressure on the organization and you raise all the prices and that sort of thing. It ends up kind of, it has to go somewhere. Like the money has to come from somewhere. So, you know, there tends to be price increases or a drop in quality of service uh, for the customer. Uh, and then these, you know, sometimes these, these storefronts can decline, but um, you know, again, my opinion, um, probably not well, even a very good one. I've been in and out of unions since I was like, 18 years old. I worked in grocery stores through uh, college and I started in a non-union yep. grocery store. And then I wound up being a teamster in the grocery stores. And for me, it meant free healthcare. I mean, back, you know, this is you know more than 30 yep. years ago. I had really, really good benefits. I had very good pay. It was a very tough job. You know, you worked really hard. So but then when I became a cop, I really saw the value because you need somebody representing you when if you're going to think to yourself, well, the city will do right by you. You know, these politicians don't have any ulterior motives. You know, they'll do the right thing. No, they won't. You know, for me, it was, okay, if somebody's getting disciplined, is it fair? You know, if Kevin caught a three-day yeah. suspension for, you know, X, Y, or Z, and then JD gets a three-week suspension for the same thing, well, that isn't fair. And if there's no union, they just run right. amok. So, but there's also other things, you know, like Barnes and Nobles, look at Barnes and Nobles, you know, <laughs> what else is going on with them? You know, they were going down to the toilet, they were closing all their stores, they're going back up. They, how many times do they have new owners? Yeah. And now this might be the, the grenade that goes into the bunker that might blow them up. Who knows? Yeah, certainly. This episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. 
Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level. So you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is J.D. Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com slash J.D. to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. Well, JD, who is up this week? Oh, this week we've got uh, New York Times bestseller Riley Sager coming back. Uh, his third time. His latest book is called The Only One Left, releases June 20th. This one's going to be a lot of fun. Riley Sager. So you have a new book out, The Only One Left, which is a gothic murder mystery about a caregiver um, working for a woman accused of killing her whole family decades earlier. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, it's it's called The Only One Left, and it is about this at-home health aide named Kit McDeer, who has basically, she got into some job trouble, and so this is her like only assignment that she can take. And it is to care for a woman named Lenora Hope, who, when she was 17, her entire family was killed and everyone thinks Lenora did it since she was the only one left, but they could never prove it. And Lenora has never spoken about it, nor has she left this gilded age mansion where it all took place called fittingly enough hope's end. And so Kit arrives to hope's end and finds a much older Lenora who is in really bad shape, you know, some strokes, some bad health. She can't speak. She can't walk. She's mostly paralyzed. She can only use her left hand. But with that left hand, she can type, and that's how she communicates. And one night she types to Kit, I want to tell you everything. And so that sets off this whole mystery where... um. Kid is determined to find out what really happened that night. And so throughout the course of the book, we see Lenora's typewritten account of what led up to the events of that night. Yes, we do. And I know you said uh, with your last book, The House Across the Lake, that you wrote a book that was difficult to talk about because of all the spoilers, and you've done it again. <laughs> so The Only One Left is one of the twistiest novels I've read. It's hard to come up with good twists like that and keep readers guessing. Do you have any tips on for how to incorporate so many misdirections and red herrings? Yes. If you think of a twist, don't just settle on that one twist. Like you need to then twist it again <laughs> and then maybe again. And I've, I found that I had this reputation now of being like, Ooh, he's a twist guy. His books always have like these big, crazy twists and reveals that you never see coming. But now people are expecting them. And so it becomes this game of, oh gosh, I need to one up this again. And so how do I do that? And so like 
the main twist for the only one left, I thought of that one really early on. And then I was starting to write the book. I'm like, oh, I need to do more than just that. <laughs> and so then it became this sort of, okay, gosh, what else could I do with this thing? And I think it, yeah, I don't even know how, there, it's a lot. There are a lot of, the, the last hundred pages are just like twist on twist on twist to the point where maybe none of it is a twist and we've just like crossed the Rubicon <laughs> and now we, yeah, on, on uncharted territory. So you had your final twist and then kind of worked backwards twisting until it was just all twisted up in one giant knot. And that's kind of how that one was. giant knot is a very good way to describe it. Yes. <laughs> well, I certainly couldn't guess the ending and that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> uh, you know, I always feel like I've, I've got the ending, especially in uh, TV shows, like in the fourth episode, usually in this one, I was like, well, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm loving it. <laughs> that's that's kind of the the overall vibe that i look for when when someone's reading my book it's like i have no idea where this is going to go but i don't hate it so no it was definitely fun to read and yeah and you have two separate timelines in this book so you have the present story and as you said an epistolary story that's a typed up recollection about uh what happened decades ago can you walk us through that process in your writing how did that come about how did you decide to weave this together i'd love to hear about it yeah, I was, I always have like flashbacks or dual timelines in my books and every book I'm just like, no, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not going to do it. And so I wasn't going to do it with this book, but then I realized there's just so much information about the past and how am I going to relay that to the reader? And very early on, I latched onto this idea of, oh, Lenora types it herself. And so that's fun because we don't know, and Kit doesn't know, if it's all true. Laura is Lenora, for someone who cannot speak, is a very possibly unreliable narrator. Yeah, I think manipulative is the word that was used she, about her over. And she over. has been known to be manipulative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and that was it was a whole giant challenge of this book because I knew I wanted to have this character who was basically incapacitated in every regard. But then how do you make that person interesting? How do you let their personality shine through? How do you make them menacing? And so that was a fun challenge to try to do to like, okay, how much through just typing sentences, can I get across this woman's manipulation is one thing, but also she's, she's also, she's likable, even if you suspect that she murdered her entire family. So there, there's, there's a whole lot of dimensions to Lenora that I tried to convey just through one woman's typing with one hand. Yeah. And it, you did a nice job making her creepy, even though she can't walk or talk or really move. And she was a pretty creepy, but likable character. Um, and you use the the storylines to great effect. Like sometimes uh, the reader is getting the same information at the same time as the caregiver kit, sometimes before, sometimes after. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you use that to increase tension in your writing? 
yeah, the the one reason I keep going back to these flashbacks structure in my books is because it is a great suspense generator. Like to have the present day character think they know what's going on, and then you drop in a flashback that just changes everything, and you're like, oh, they don't have a clue what's going on, and mm-hmm. so. To have that, to have the, to give the reader information that the narrator might not have is very effective and it's very fun. As an author, I'm always looking for ways in which to do that, to just sort of tip off the reader, but then also withhold things from the reader. And at mm-hmm. the same time, it's this very tricky balance. And with the these these flashbacks, the 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 typewritten aspect of Lenora's story, I just thought it would be fun to just drop a couple bombshells along the way that and then kit has to play catch up to the reader to figure out like what's going on yeah and it's a great technique i think for other writers to look at your use of you know mystery and suspense and dramatic irony uh using those two separate storylines at different times so yeah that was awesome and i know there's been a comparison to lizzie borden for this novel but i'm curious if uh what goes on with the house was a little bit of a nod to pose house of usher I'd love to hear about your influences for this book. Yeah, it it, it was it definitely Lizzie Borden inspired me. That was the first thing that made me come up with this idea. And normally I kind of know and can remember when I get a story idea, like and what inspires it. Like I remember watching the movie Halloween on Halloween in 2014 and coming up with this idea that later became final girls. I don't recall (laughs) what set this off, (laughs) but for some reason I was thinking about Lizzie Borden and I wish I could remember like what put Lizzie Borden in my head, but I, I cannot, but not just about Lizzie Borden. It was like, did she live to be a ripe old age? I still don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just got me thinking, what if Lizzie Borden was like really old and really infirm and needed someone to take care of her? What would that be like for the person <laughs> who having taken care of this woman that everyone thinks murdered her parents with an ax? And that got me thinking, I'm like, oh, there's an idea here, like a, a, a caregiver who has to take care of someone who everyone thinks murdered her family many, many years ago. And what brought her to this point? And how does she feel about this? Is she scared? Does she suspect her? Is she curious? So I knew all of that would make a really good book. And so, of course, because Lizzie Borden has the rhyme, yeah, Lenora Hope has her own rhyme. And that was literally the first thing I wrote before I really even knew what the book was. I'm like, I need to have a rhyme. And so I wrote this very morbid song, I guess, about Lenora Hope and hung her sister with a rope and stabbed her father with a knife and took her mother's happy life. And once I got that established, then I was like, I I think I, I'm going to write a book about this now. The, the, the House of Usher thing happened later in the the first drafting of the book where I wanted this mansion to be super creepy. I love 
a very good atmospheric location. And since pretty much most of the book takes place in this mansion, I knew it had to have something special. And the something special about Hope's End is that it sits on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Atlantic and the cliff is slowly being eroded by the waves. And so the land has shifted and the whole house just tilts ever so slightly. And once I latched onto that idea, I just try to have as much fun with it as possible. Like just yeah. all the different ways in which it could be disorienting and like the water in the bathtub is tilted because of the tilt of the house and kid every morning wakes up slightly lower on the bed because the mattress slid. It just, I wanted the house to feel as unbalanced as Kit felt yeah. in the midst of all this mystery. Yeah. And it's kind of unraveling as the mystery unravels. It was a great parallel. So um, you talked a little bit there about atmosphere. Do you think isolation is a key ingredient to writing a gothic, a gothic novel? I know you use kind of isolations in a number of your books. Yeah. When I decided that this was going to be a gothic novel, I knew that there were some things that readers expect from a gothic novel that I was looking forward to playing around with and having fun with. And so, yeah, the isolation, this, you know, gothic novels are, it's creepy mansion on windswept cliffs. And there are, you know, there's usually a menacing maid or housekeeper or <laughs> There's a ruggedly handsome groundskeeper. Like this book has all of those things. And I wanted to just put all of that in there and be like, yes, here is your gothicness. And now let's have some fun with it. But yeah, I do think isolation plays a big part of it because these a lot of these gothic tropes are this this young innocent coming into this place that is a little bit malevolent and menacing and dangerous. And that was another thing. Although Kit might not be as innocent as gothic heroines of the past. That's true. And it definitely had those elements right down to the uniforms and the awkward yes. curtsies. <laughs> yeah, the, the uniform was something, uh, again, when I first was coming up with the idea, I just had this vision of a young woman in this prim, old-fashioned nurse's uniform in a slightly tilted hallway. And that just screamed gothic to me. And so that is one of the reasons I said it in 1983 is because people, you know, nurses today don't wear these prim, tidy uniforms. And they kind of did maybe at some point in the early 80s. But even then, it was a little bit outdated. But Kid is forced to wear this uniform, just like the maids are forced to wear the maids' uniforms and the the cook the chef's uniforms because it's this reminder of the grandeur that this mansion once had and doesn't have any longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So I definitely thought that it created a great atmosphere. And so I saw also that for this book, you have a pretty large book tour coming up with numerous stops. And I'm just curious how you handle that from a writer perspective. Do you write while you're doing that type of tour? No, no. <laughs> I, I schedule it. If some might, I cannot. No, the, the, the book tours, they are 
so much fun and they are so much work. <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very taxing to get up at sometimes four in the morning and catch a flight and fly to a different city and get there on time and check in your hotel and then get to the bookstore and then be on. And yeah. because I, I, it amazes me and that people are willing to come to, to see me and meet me and talk to me about my books. And I don't take that lightly. And so I want to put on a good show and I want them to have a good time. And, you know, during the signing line to give everyone some, a few minutes of one-on-one conversation. But at the end of the day, I'm just so depleted and dead on my feet. And then it's like, okay, it's 4 a.m. in the next day. Let go on a new new flight, new plane, new tour. And so by the end of it, I'm just done. So I, I can't, I wouldn't be able to manage writing amid all of that as well. Yeah. I was just looking at that and like three days, three different stops. How do you manage writing? So the answer is you take a break, which I think is probably pretty wise. Take a break. And and my publicist actually wanted me to have more, but I said like, I need a weekend in between Mm -hmm. (laughs) these things. Like I know my limits. And because last year was the first post COVID quote unquote tour that Mm -hmm. I did and so many people came out to see me and it was so much fun but i got home and i pretty much literally passed out <laughs> i was i sat down on the couch and then i just kind of slumped over to the side and just fell asleep and i was i was out like a light for hours i can imagine i'm like that and it looks exhausting to me and you have to sign all those books and then, my goodness do you sign fun things inside your books I try. <laughs> I, I wish I was more creative and had more fun things to say. And also my handwriting is awful. Like pe- people will take pictures of what I write and then post it on Instagram and I'll see like, oh, there is my God awful handwriting on Instagram. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to sign inside a book? Oh, just I, my go-to is best wishes and happy reading. That's nice. Yeah. yeah cause good. I, I, cause that's, it's genuine and I mean it. Like, I hope you really yeah. like this book and have a good time. And it's generic enough that they want to resell it. It won't harm the value. So that's perfect. Except I do include their name. So, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about movies. So Netflix acquired uh, the house across the lake, I believe. Can you tell us anything about that yet? I can't because, oh, no. <laughs> well, one, I'm, my, my involvement is basically, I wrote the book. You want to adapt it? Here, awesome. I mean, for the House Across the Lake, I did have a lot of meetings with different people in Hollywood about it, and it was very fun. I got to meet some cool producers and directors and writers, and um, yeah, I, I went with um, Paul Feig, who is a very great director. He's a very funny guy. He's done a lot of TV. Um, he did Bridesmaids and mm-hmm. the female Ghostbusters and A Simple Favor. And he just laid out this vision of the book that I was just like, yes, please. I, I, I would love for you to make this movie. That being said, who knows if it's ever going to get made mm-hmm. into a movie right now. There's a writer's strike going there's on. There's a writer's strike going a pretty big one that could and last, it could quite last a while. for a long, 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 long time. And so 
I don't think any work has been done on the screenplay. And so mm-hmm. once the strike is over, maybe everyone will have moved on. And so it's it's all everything is up in the air with the strike. Right. And yeah, it's it's put a screeching halt to pretty much everything in development. Yeah, and you'd had um Sony picked up too, uh what was that, Home Before Dark? Did it that still waiting to hear? It's like, still this waiting is, to hear. I know that there's a there's a director attached. There's a yeah. screenplay written. It's Patrick Bryce, right? Is the director? Yeah, it is yeah. Patrick Bryce. Yeah. yeah. And so I I'd be I'd love for that to happen. Um and this is why when whenever it comes to movies, I'm very hands-off. Mm-hmm. Like I I have my meetings, sort of make a decision. Like I like what this person has sort of pitched to me. So let's go with this person. And then that's that's really the end of my involvement. Um yeah. hopefully in the future I will have more input. Like we're trying to see if I can make that happen with my schedule. So we'll see. Once the strike is over and my next book is finished, maybe I'll have some time to like get more hands on with this kind of thing. Yeah. That's kind of the writer's life, right? Hurry up and then wait and see. And that's just the way it goes. Yeah. And and my books keep me very, very busy. Yeah. Which is which is a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you've had a lot of publicity for the books. Um, Stephen King read and and re, uh tweeted out about Final Girls, right? Is that kind of how that took, you know, helped take it off or oh gosh what happened yes. with that? <laughs> I still don't know quite exactly what happened there. It was six months before Final Girls came out and it was it was the day after Christmas and he read it and tweeted about it <laughs> and and the next week it was in Entertainment Weekly saying that he tweeted about it and there was the cover <laughs> and that just brought a whole massive it just it created this groundswell of interest in this book months before it came out and it was so unexpected I still to this day don't know how he exactly got a copy. Okay. And it's a mystery. And yeah, and he was yeah. just he saw it and was like, Yeah, I'll read this. And he liked it, thank God. And and it's altered the entire course of my career. Like I would not be selling the amount of books I sell today if it wasn't for him. So with that, you said it was about six months before it came out. Did you know you're gonna hit the bestsellers list before you hit? Like, was that something you kind of knew from sales or was that a complete surprise? That was a complete surprise. And this is where, this is one (laughs) of the things where like, it gets weird. Like I've, that's the only one of my books that hasn't been a New York Times bestseller. Oh, okay. It was a USA Today bestseller and a Publishers Weekly bestseller and all the other bestseller lists, just not the New York Times. But I think everyone thinks it was. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think it was just on the cusp but i wasn't even that did not even enter my mind like the book had been out it was there's always you know like the week after the book comes out the oh my gosh will will we make the bestseller list kind of talk with my my publisher and there was none of that because i didn't expect any of that it's it's yeah. still weird to me like today to just be like, oh, I'm a New York Times bestseller. 
like how did that happen yeah like (laughs) well how the heck did that happen and wow yeah yeah best christmas present ever i guess huh it really was the best christmas present ever yeah stephen king's tweet yeah fantastic so i know also that um this is just like a complete 180 but i'm gonna go there anyway so that you are uh, a beverage aficionado <laughs> and that you like your gin and your bourbon. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't say aficionado, <laughs> but I, I do enjoy a good drink. Yeah. Like right now I am drinking crystal light. Okay. That's I know. Starting no. to disappoint you. Aww. No, the last podcast I recorded, I was drinking a martini. Yeah. And I think I think I got a little bit too like chatty. <laughs> You can never so. be too chatty on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the charm. So I want to know what your favorite uh, winter and summer drinks are that are of the adult variety. Okay, winter drink. It is. It's. It's a. It's an old fashioned, but it's made with. There is a maple syrup company called Runamuck, hmm. which is based in Vermont, and they do a smoked maple syrup. And so it just, if you use that as the simple syrup in an old fashioned, it just gives it this wonderful, just slightly smoky flavor that goes great with like the bourbon and the cherries and the bitters. And it's, it's a, it's a, it is the perfect drink to have like on a crisp autumn night. I am a big fan of old fashions. That sounds awesome. It is. It's it's a great, great. It's my favorite drink. Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever uh, preferred bourbon for that? I I like Woodford Reserve. It's 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 nice and smooth, yeah. Yeah. And then in the the summer, um, you, you can't go wrong with a gin and tonic. I have a, my own like special drink that I make. Mm-hmm. That it's it's something like I buy it from a place. It's called Alpine Syrup, and. Okay. It has like just a little bit of like a not a like woodsy taste, but like it, it a smell of like evergreens. And so you pour that in with some gin and yeah, it's it's very good. A little bit juniper forward. That sounds great. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. Juniper forward. I love that. And it looks like you may also be a big uh Taylor Swift fan. Is this true? Use uh, one of her is- quotes in your last book. <laughs> that is that is undeniably true. I'm a I'm a massive Swifty. Yes. Yeah, I know he did it. I just can't prove it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Taylor Swift and you bake, and you love Mickey Mouse. Is this yes. all true? And these this are is, all the perfect well, I mean, influences my, for my, a murder writer. <laughs> my my baking, they are not. That's the thing. Like, it's yeah. The the, the baking thing. Like, I am not a good baker. I, I do it anyway. Yeah. Because it's fun. like t- tomorrow I plan on baking a cherry pie. We nice. will see how that turns out. But yeah, I, I just, it's, it's a nice stress reliever to just whip something up, put it in the oven. And it usually comes out looking pretty terrible. Um, usually it tastes good, That's all but that it's, it's, it's a nice distraction from writing about murders and, and such. So maybe that's why I was like Mickey Mouse, Taylor Swift, and baking and murder writing. Why is it murder writers always tend to be the nicest people? And then they're I don't are know. So dark. They are. I think because we, <laughs> we we get it all out on the page. That must be it. 
but yeah murder mystery and thriller writers are just the nicest people and we're all like bright and happy like i just did i'm not sure if i can say this or not but i mean i i just did an interview with rolling stone about writers who love taylor swift and why we love taylor swift and i was saying like yeah there's she has a big big fan base among mystery and thriller writers yeah and the the reporter was like that's surprising and i'm like i guess maybe i don't know she's a really great storyteller that's why we love her yeah you gotta love a singer who's a great storyteller that's true that's a good point awesome well we'll look uh, forward to reading that uh article when it comes out in rolling stone that's that's fantastic so is it going to be yourself and other authors as well yeah i don't know who else was interviewed and i don't know when it's coming out okay that's okay i'll just have to wait and see yeah i hope it i it should be cool i had a lot of fun yeah (laughs) that's very cool all right great and as we come to a close i just have one final question that we ask everyone uh if you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring writers what would it be oh um that success doesn't come in a straight line and that everything is weird and (laughs) that i'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this um everything is an opportunity to learn even if it's a really terrible experience you learn from it and there are things that i'm still learning and there are things that you know when my first book came out under my real name you know gosh it's been 13 years ago like i didn't know the things i didn't know and so i didn't know to ask them or to try to learn them because how do you know if you don't know and so it's just you just have to treat everything as a learning experience and that something that might look like a negative could turn into a positive later. And I use this example all the time. Um, I did not have an easy time finding an agent. I was rejected. I had a whole spreadsheet of like all the rejections. I was rejected by about 110 agents. There was one agent who asked for revisions and I did them and then asked for more revisions and I did them and then said, I'm so sorry. You put so much work into this book. It's just not where I think it needs to be. And my thriller list is full already. And so I'm regretfully going to have to pass, but I have a colleague who is looking for a thriller and she might really like this. So I'm going to put in a good word for you. She did. That colleague became my agent and she is still my agent today. And we have had just wonderful success together. Oh, that's great advice. And that's a great story. Yeah, it's 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 so things things do work out sometimes. Hey there, it's Christine Daigle and J.P. Rhineplush. And we want to tell you about our wonderful sponsor, Master Writer. Master Writer is a powerful collection of writing tools and reference assembled in one easy to use program. 
included our word families, phrases, synonyms, rhymes, definitions, figures of speech, pop culture, and searchable Bible and intensifiers, a unique collection of intense descriptive words. Why struggle to find the right word when you can have all the possibilities in an instant? While a computer can't compete with the mind and imagination of a writer, the mind can't compete with the word choices that Master Writer will give you in an instant. When the two work together, great things happen. Check it out today at masterwriter.com. All right, so question for you guys. What's your favorite drink? Ooh. I'm going to let Patrick answer this first because mine's... This is, almost, this is almost like a Sophie's Choice question, really. <laughs> um, you're asking an Irish guy what his favorite drink is. Wow. Um, I do love the Irish whiskey. I don't drink it all that much because I, I'm old now and I don't like a two-day hangover. That just that doesn't work, bode so well for me. Uh, depends what I'm doing. If it's just like on the back patio smoking a cigar, yeah, I'll have a beer. You know, it depends on what's going on. Yeah. Wintertime, I'll drink Guinness. Big surprise. But little fun fact about me that a lot of people don't know is I love champagne. I love the bubbles. If I can get a interesting great bottle of Bollinger. Bollinger is my favorite all day long. The drier, the better. It better be like the desert. That's my favorite. I cannot stand champagne or or fizzy <laughs> wine at all you're not drinking uh, the right stuff you're I will not say, drinking the right stuff i no nah, no i'm just i'm not i'm not drinking the right stuff i'm not drinking the wrong stuff i'm not <laughs> drinking any of the stuff uh but i will drink like our guest i will drink woodford reserve i i happen to agree with him on that i also agree with the uh that you can't go wrong with a gin and tonic um but i'm a i'm i'm pretty much a bourbon guy i'm a street whiskey guy really uh and I also like a really good, like peaty scotch, which I, Ugh. you know, that's that's a tough one for most people. But I, I, I you know, I'm a, and I love Irish whiskey. I haven't had a, I haven't met an Irish whiskey yet that I didn't get along <laughs> with really well for the first few drinks. So then I'm, then we're fighting. But I, I, I shot Riley an email like right at the tail end of that, um, that interview, and and I basically told him that I I feel t- completely unsophisticated. Like like I I, I feel like if if my beer needs a, a bottle opener to open it instead of a twist off cap, like I feel like that's a, that's a win. Like yeah. I'm an adult there. Um, but like yeah. my my go to drink, and we talked about this briefly before the show, is a White Russian, which is essentially adult chocolate milk. Um, lately I've been drinking Grasshoppers because I've got a character in my latest book that that drinks them, and it's just this old drink that nobody really knows about. Um, but it tastes like Andy's candies. It tastes like a you know it's like a dessert like it doesn't feel like it has alcohol in it i have never had scotch mm-hmm. i've never had bourbon um i rarely touch any type of hard alcohol um you're you're it, you're better off I, I, yeah probably yeah, i mean being a writer like it always seems to end badly for for those of yeah. us that, that do um <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I, there's something very cool about somebody having you know a glass with a little bourbon and a cigar and kind of kicking back like that's just it's a yeah. it's a neat vibe um but i've just i've never tried it that's the the mystique of it, yeah. but then you know you're dealing with all the, the there are side effects to both those things. Cigars in particular, I mean, I like a good cigar, but I will I will get horrendously sick on cigars. Uh, really, if I don't you know moderate, yeah. If well, I yeah, like Swisher I do, sweets I can do one cigar no smokes. problem. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm not talking about Swisher sweets. I mean, you know, I if I'm going to have a cigar, it's just like whiskey. I'm going to invest. You know, I want okay. I want that to be. A, an experience my when i got married my father-in-law uh and my brother-in-law and a couple of my friends we all did a you know in lieu of a bachelor party because i was kind of new to the area and 
but we we did a whole cigar bar thing, and uh, that was one of the, my favorite nights. You know, I mean, we just hung, none of them had ever smoked a cigar. Uh, we just all hung out in this room that sucks all the air upward constantly. So it was a nice, not even all that smoky experience. But yeah, I so I've written, liked cigars since then. Yeah, I have written many many words in cigar lounges. I love going to a cigar lounge and and writing. It's it's yeah. awesome. It's all just a big gateway drug to buying smoking jackets and wingback chairs. I'm, I'm, that's I'm what staying, away is, from, staying away from it. Uh, <laughs> I put a, I I put a, a wingback chair jacket. in the van. Yes, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I feel like when, when Riley's on, like we should all like literally, like I know we say take get the notepad out in the opening to the show, but like for Riley, I really feel like you need to do that. Um, if you're an aspiring author, get out there and read or get the audiobooks for for his titles and just kind of run through them. Because yeah. this, this guy is phenomenal at crafting a, a story from start to finish. And as I was listening to him, I think a lot of it is it's the the little things, right? You know, like he got the idea of, you know, thinking about Lizzie Borden. Then, um, mm-hmm. you know, that leads to creating his own rhyme. Uh, then he comes up with this house and the house is, you know, it's tilting a little bit you know which is fairly normal up here in new england it happens but like yeah like these tiny little things they just all add up employees in uniforms you know the, the older woman types with one hand um like all these tiny little details i mean that's what really brings life to it's very stories. very eclectic and that's very like he pointed out i mean that's very gothic you know the way the way he spun that together it's like those gothic stories that you you've always heard about coming up you know and uh and, and the stuff that you were forced to read in in high school that made you hate literature and then you read later and really liked you know so. yeah it's just he, he, he seems to find that magic formula and it, i know he does a ton of research you know by way of entertainment he loves watching movies i know he reads like a fiend um you know so he's you know he's keeping notes too and he's he's picking through those he's figuring out what's working what's not and he's just trying to in- incorporate all that um yeah christine had mentioned isolation and horror um Mm-hmm. I, that that is huge, and I and the fact that he set this in 1983, I think that helps quite a bit, because uh, in today's world, it is very difficult to isolate your characters. You know, we are literally surrounded by yeah. technology that keeps us in the know, no matter where we are. Um, when right. you dive back to 83, it's it's a little easier. But you can shortcut. So one one interesting thing about the modern era is that we're all so dependent and so always on with uh, mobile phones. Uh, always able to chat with each other uh, at any given time that when you, when that gets disrupted and disabled um, it's an, it's like a shortcut for tension for the reader. Cause like that, that concept, like, you know, even just talking about right now, I'm having this minor anxiety attack, you know, like <laughs> if my, if I couldn't get online uh, to check something out, cause there's a certain level of comfort I feel uh, when, you know, if I'm in the middle of nowhere and we did this a lot in the van, like I'd be in the literal middle of nowhere and, uh, I could still get signal some, sometimes, uh, those times when I couldn't though, that's when I started sweating. Like that's when I started feeling very tense about everything. Yeah. And you can so, play with those nice things, right? Like, you know, a character's yeah. cell phone is at 12%. You know, like every, every yes. reader knows what that feels that's like. That's the like that. ticking clock, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, that's a classic. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's ways to get there. Um, the the two stories weave together. Have you have you guys tried that before? You know, like no past and I present, um, A and B. You know where they all. Yeah, I do that a lot. Um, my, I ha- I I kind of stole a technique from the comic book writing world where they'll do like an A, B, and C story, uh, 
because I was writing series, I, I would have the A story as the primary story for that book. And then there would be like a B and C story that, that might continue over a couple of different books. And eventually the B story becomes the A story. Uh, so I, I've done that a lot. Um, and, and even in standalone books, I typically have one or two characters who are kind of off on their own little uh, adventure. Uh, what was the the two, the two uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, like I've got that kind of scenario going sometimes. Well, Riley is, is fantastic at this too. Um, and he uses it, you know, not only to tell the backstory, um, but also from a cliffhanger standpoint. You know, it's, it's one thing to end your chapter on a cliffhanger, but he also ends each of those, you know, past and present situations on a cliffhanger, um, which makes yeah. you just want to turn those pages that much more. I can tell you from a writing standpoint, like I, I love doing this mainly because, you know, I'll, I'll write the A story or the you know, the present story or whatever that one might be. And if I get hung up or I get stuck, then I bounce back to the other one and write that one for a while while I think of my, you know, how I'm going to get out you know, whatever hole I put myself in with the first one and kind of bounce back and forth. And it's just a really easy way to just keep the, the words coming, you know, ra rather than staring at a blank page, especially if you're, if you're pantsy in a novel. Yeah. What about um, book signings? Have you guys done a lot of these? I've done a few. Yeah. Christine had asked him about, um, you know, what he actually signs with. And like, I, I actually, I don't know about you, but I've, I've got a simple note document now because I've got nine books that are out there. And like, I've got one particular phrase for each book that I, I tend to use. So I, I refer back to that, that simple note document. Um, but you know, like nobody really teaches you how to do a book signing. And, and again, Riley's got this dialed in, you know, he, he spends, it doesn't matter if his line is, you know, a thousand people around the, you know, the corner or whatever, he spends just a little bit of time with each person that, that comes to the table and makes some type of personal connection with them. And, and that is so important. I know when I first started doing them, you know, I literally just, you know, somebody would put a book in front of me. I signed my name. I said, hello. And I moved on to the next person and the next person, the next person, yeah. like super fast. Um, and, and yeah, like you, you learn over time how to do that. There, there really needs to be like a, a class i think we need a panel maybe a thriller fest we need a panel on how to sign books. we should do a panel yeah, yeah okay i'm go. planning to come next year to thriller <laughs> fest so we'll do that panel yeah I'll, I, so i'll sign I, i'll have different phrases i'll kind of rotate in and out but like one of them is uh you know i hope i hope your life is the real adventure kevin and then that one always seems to go over well and then you know i don't want to do like you know, happy reading or, or, or something like that. Like, I want them to feel like I actually took the time to do something personal. Uh, but if you, if you really do something personal with each one, that, that just going to eat your soul. <laughs> well, I've, I've noticed a lot of the, the lines that I've stood in for, you know, bigger name authors, like they, they have, you know, probably one sentence or so that is kind of their go-to for each, each title, yeah, yeah. Um, which takes time, you know, when you're signing for a yeah. lot of people, writing out a whole sentence, like my handwriting's terrible and, you know, like I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it needs work, but um, it's, it, you know, if you're on the receiving end of that, it's just, it's so appreciated and you got to kind of keep that in mind. I had uh, John Scalzi sign um, his book, Lock, Lock In. Uh, to current occupant in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Patrick, I cut you off. No, that's okay. I was just saying that, you know, obviously most of my books are policey kind of stuff. So I just put down, let's be careful out there from the old Hill Street Blues. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I sign off my uh, podcast that way and I, I, I sign the books that way. And I also put the date. Just You should name. sign yours like hands in the air. Yeah, and the, you know, pick <laughs> then some police. Then they're going to drop the book. Yeah, that that's not going to work. But <laughs> and also, I believe it's interest. It's interesting and it's good to offer some treats to your people because I think it's humbling that people actually take the time out to actually come to your event and want to buy your book and want your yeah. signature. So 
you know, a local bookstore, I'll put like candy. And my wife was like, well, you need donuts. You're a cop. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. Then at the cigar place, I put out Irish whiskey and bourbon. So if you buy a book, you get a shot. That'll get me to come to your signing. Yeah, there we go. And this show, this show is making me thirsty and making me hungry. I know. I I think (laughs) I want a cigar now. (laughs) So I get to the to the kitchen. By the way, I think Barnes and Noble is like the worst place to do signings. Just just putting that out there. I I love Barnes and Noble. I love going there. But anytime I've been there, I had the same experience he had. Well, no, that he wasn't the one talking about. It was Chuck Polyanik, Polyanik, or whatever. Who was saying that? But the you know, I, I show up at a Barnes and Noble and like two people show up, you know. But I'll go to some indie bookstore and there'll be a, a crowd. Oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, that's great. That's my two cents. Honestly, that's one more of those things that they need to teach you in advance. Like it can literally go either way. Um, and it's yeah, it's funny because when I used to work with with rock stars and stuff back in the nineties, you know, like the bigger names, like they could perform the same in front of those three people as they did in front of fifty thousand. Like they literally put on yeah. the same show. And I think if you're doing a signing or you're doing a talk, you kind of have to you know think of it along the same lines. Just put on the best show that you possibly can. It doesn't really matter what size the the audience is. Um, and it can, yeah. it can switch on a dime. Cool. So who who are we looking at next week? Next week, this one's going to be fun. We've got New York Times bestseller S.A. Cosby and Grammy Award winner Quest Love. Um, they're going to be discussing their new title together. It's called The Rhythm of Time, which is out now. And if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com. <laughs>